several times we have walked from the upper room out and southward to the gate that he probably went through. Different accounts, but one suggests it was the gate that led to the refuse pile I've spoken of earlier. Today, farther north, the more modern wall has such a gate, and it is known as the Dung Gate. We're talking about the city dump. Jesus is now rejected, never spent a night in the city of Jerusalem, and is leaving it as the off-scouring of all things, and walks with Peter, James, and John, and the others, through a garbage dump. You have seen the Kidron Valley, and you read in the Gospels of the stream, or the brook Kidron. Not a beautiful babbling brook of fresh mountain water. It was a slough. The valley at that time was at least 40 feet deeper than it is today, and even now. It is a deep ravine. They may have walked close to the old, still-flowing Hezekiah Tunnel and the Pool of Gihon, the place Isaiah had stood centuries before and prophesied that a virgin or young woman would conceive and bring forth a son. It was dark, but they certainly would have walked close to and past two visible tombs. One is named for Absalom, the son of David, the other for Zechariah. Authentic or not, the evidence is that David himself was entombed not far away. The present-day tomb of David, which has become a synagogue and attracts Jews from around the world, is known not to be authentic. But what thoughts in the mind of Jesus, he who was the resurrection? Was he asking himself as the son of David? Or was he saying to himself, I will open your tomb, these tombs, and eventually all tombs? Now above those tombs, indeed high above, was the traditional pinnacle of the temple. And the Talmudic literature differs on where it was that the man stood at precise hours to blow the shofar, the trumpet that announced, for example, the beginning of Passover or the beginning of the Sabbath. And just south of that rectangle, newly excavated, they have now discovered more than 50 cisterns which are linked closely to the steps leading up to two entryways. They're known, though they are stoned up today, they're known as the Hulda Gates. 
and it is certain that he ascended an inclined plane going to and from the temple on those stairs. Some of them are known to be Roman, and his very foot could have touched them. Those cisterns were apparently used as purification chambers for preparation to go on the Temple Mount. They may have been used on the day of Pentecost to make possible 3,000 baptisms by immersion. And again, one wonders if that night Jesus was saying to himself, what I am about to go through, the very shedding of my blood, will make possible sanctification in the washings and anointings and baptisms of the house of God. We have a rare statement from the prophet Joseph that some washings, some anointings, some baptisms, and some baptisms for the dead were performed on that day under the direction of Peter. And he says cryptically, on that day God obtained a house where these things were done. We don't know where that was, but somewhere in Jerusalem. Whatever the exact route, they crossed the brook and entered into the place familiar, not just to Jesus, but to his closest ones, where he was, quote, want, quote, to assemble. At least eight of the twelve were together, perhaps in the role of guardian. Peter, James, and John were closer and a stone's throw from them. Jesus knelt. The Garden of Gethsemane today, on a spot traditionally assigned that name, is really a rectangle of more than a dozen ancient olive trees side by side with a recently built church. It is, of all sacred sites in Jerusalem, one of the most frequently visited. So as we came during the day, it was crowded with people moving in and out in large groups. That will account for the sounds of conversation as well as occasionally of singing in the background. There will be similar interference as we approach the dungeon, the place of trial and scourging, and finally, the garden tomb. At one time or another, probably every hymn, every Christ-centered hymn that has ever been written and in every living language has been sung in these places by visitors. In less dangerous times, we have encouraged our students to walk wordlessly from the place of the Last Supper, then to the place known as the Caiaphas Palace for an insight into the dungeon, then down across the Valley of Kidron and to Gethsemane, and, if the city were still open, through the gate of St. Stephen and along the Way of Sorrows to the place 
known as the Antonia Fortress. When their minds and hearts were full of the fresh rereading of the gospel accounts of Jesus' last seven days, this experience was solemn and sanctifying and binding and bonding to the Savior as no other walks in the Holy Land could be. Sometimes we recounted before the walk the story Meyer Ben Dove, the great archaeologist of the Temple Mount, told us about Neil Armstrong, who after his space flight became a Christian. He asked Ben Dove as they stood in the ruins, can you tell me for sure a place where Jesus actually put his foot down? And Ben Dove pointed to some stairs that go back to the first century, which were the ascending entryway into the Temple Mount, and said, yes, Jesus coming or going would have had to walk on that stairway. Neil Armstrong walked over, put his foot down on the step and said, this thrills me more than putting my foot on the moon. One of the oldest trees is behind you, at least 1,800 years old, still productive, still produces olives, and you see new shoots, branches, coming out of what appear to be dead roots. I've often asked our students, is that ugly or is it beautiful? And the answer is yes. And so also, in a way, is the experience of Gethsemane. Horrifying, and yet somehow beautiful. There's a line somewhere in Joseph Smith that handsome men are not apt to be strong-minded men. Have you ever noticed that? And goes on to say that, that strong character tends to make a person rugged in appearance. And his face shows that. Someone also has said, the face you are born with, you cannot help. It is what it is. But after you are 40 and beyond, the face you have is the face you deserve. Your face is the record of your life. Now we sing a hymn of Christ based upon Isaiah with no apparent beauty. Remember that? With no apparent beauty that man should him desire. Now, I don't know the exact appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, all my life I've wished for a painting that somehow spoke to me. But I can tell you this, that he tells us that we are to seek his face always. And the face is the soul's record, and especially the eyes. 
Christ lived an eternity almost in the short 30 to 33 years that he lived. And if there is such a thing as maturity, he climaxed his incredible growth right here and is capable now of understanding the entire spectrum of human experience. That the name of this garden is Gethsemane, which in Hebrew is Gat Shemen, which means the place of the olive press. And again it is significant to me that he who said I have descended below all things suffered at the very bottom of the Mount of Olives and that his triumphant return will be to the top of the Mount of Olives. He that descended below all things will rise above all things, but he did not ascend until he had descended. Olive oil in the ancient world had the uses of healing, of light-giving, and of ordaining or crowning in the form of anointing kings and queens. I believe that the oil that we use today in the house of the faithful was consecrated right here. We only have the privilege, brethren, of acting under his authority to consecrate it for specific uses in the church today. If it is impossible to have compassion unless you have had shared experience, this is the place where that became possible for Christ. We had at Brigham Young University a marvelous teacher and dean named West Belknap who learns one Sunday on the way to correlation meeting that he has a brain tumor. Twice they performed surgery to remove all they could, but then they told him, that's all, we can do no more for you. I was present in the last meeting he attended when he spoke to his fellow teachers at BYU. He said, brethren, I have received letters from all over the world from former students who know what I am facing. And they're not just courtesy letters. They say, on such and such a day, in such and such a class, something happened to me and it's changed my life. And before you die, I want to thank you. And his point there was, teaching really is a glorious enterprise. And we should not demean it. But then, he quoted from Alma, and you all know the passage. Alma is looking forward to the coming of Christ as we now look backward. And he says, he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Every kind. And then Alma explains why. That even he 
Jesus the Christ could not have known the depths of human experience and therefore be able to identify with us if he had not so suffered. That his bowels, I repeat, that means to the Jewish people, the center self, the heart, even our power to think is kind in that word. His bowels might be filled with compassion that he might know according to the flesh how to succor his people. Succor, comfort, balm, heal. And then West Belknap said, after he had asked President Harold B. Lee, am I to hold on to life even though I am in terrible pain? Or can I just let go? And Brother Lee said, in effect, because experience is precious, Brother West, hold on. And what he said to us was, brethren, sisters, if all Jesus Christ suffered was my kind of pain, the kind I have known in the last few months, oh, brothers and sisters, he loves us a lot more than we think. Now let's walk quietly and we are not permitted to speak loudly in the church into this church of all nations. And as you walk with me, let me show you three representations in art that speak to the soul. Notice first the mosaic on the east wall, which depicts Jesus kneeling, kneeling on what appears to be a rock. Never in history has anyone been more literally between the rock and the hard place. And outside the wall of the church is a mini sculpture which shows him stretched out, his arms above his head and his face down on stone. And somehow the artist has cut the ultimate anguish as he has drawn out, spent, utterly. Now notice further as we enter that this design and the glass darkened in each of the windows is to bring a sense, whatever the time of day, of twilight. Actually, remember, it wasn't twilight, it was dark, and that's the one sentence John gives describing what it was like for Jesus to emerge from the Last Supper room. He says simply, it was night. And then you will see up toward the front a long stone preserved in the floor, which again, simply by tradition, is thought to be the place or part of the place where Jesus knelt while his disciples slept. We brought here some years ago 
a dear and faithful lady who was in her late 80s and who prepared with exercise and diet and frequent daily walks so that she would not be, as it were, a drag on the visiting group. She was always on time to meetings, to the bus, to assigned places, but on this occasion, she was not at the bus on time. And when I came into the church looking for her, wondering if she were disoriented, I found the opposite was the case. She was kneeling as close as she could to that stone and later explained I wanted on my last visit to kneel near the place where my Lord knelt. Now we are back outside and you can see the sculpture of which I spoke. I return to the theme of the scope of the atonement. Let me first give it cosmic significance. In a poetic version of the section we call 76, the vision, the marvelous vision of the degrees of glory, written by the prophet in tribute to a returning disciple, namely William W. Phelps, Joseph turns prose into poetry and in the process of rhyming sheds light on the meanings of some of the verses. So here these two verses. We heard a great voice bearing record from heaven. He is the Savior, the only begotten of God. By him, through him, of him, the worlds were all made. Even all that career in the heavens so broad. Whose inhabitants, too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior of ours. And of course are begotten God's daughters and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers. That is to say that of every earth of which Christ is the creator, he is also the redeemer. And if there are, as we have been told, worlds without number and inhabited worlds without number, then the inhabitants thereof look to this earth and to this place on this earth and to Jesus the Christ who knelt in this garden for their own redemption. And the same principles of faith, repentance, baptism, and the reception of the Holy Ghost apply to them as to here. Millions have no doubt come from the total of not yet a hundred billion people who have lived in this world to visit this garden in tribute and response to Jesus Christ. But they are but a mere token of that number who have yet to be influenced by this act. We're now above the traditional Gethsemane and at the entranceway to the Orson Hyde Gardens dedicated by President Spencer W. Kimball 
just before 1980. And in the comparative quiet of this place, may I share with you glimpses of some saintly men and women who have been here and borne their witness to me. I begin with the glimpse of my own daughter who three, perhaps four years of age was one day playing innocently near an iron right and my son, a bit older, was toying with the plug and the cord and you know the rest. Her little hand, her right hand, went into the rollers. By the time my wife had heard the screams and thrown the emergency switch and taken her into the bathroom and put the little hand, now burned and crushed, under cold water. There were tears on both sides. Little Mindy looks up, and as the modern revelation has it, mercy had compassion on mercy. This is one of the great capacities of little children. She recognized that her mother was feeling her pain vicariously and said, don't cry, mother. It doesn't hurt. Look, I'll kiss it better. If there were no other reason for Christ to say, as he frequently said, if you wish to enter the kingdom of God, become as a little child, this one would suffice. Children identify and even are willing themselves to suffer rather than see others suffer. I stood in Gethsemane once with a man of God who confided that he and his wife, both excellent pilots, had one day taken off in separate airplanes. Because of an error on his part, he misled her and she crashed and was killed. I learned something of Gethsemane, he said to me, because it was as if the Christ said to me, I didn't just suffer for your sins, but to enable you to overcome your stupid mistakes. I sat overlooking Gethsemane with a man who had a career decision one course leading, it may have, to great political clout and to esteem in the world of affairs. The other, a path, though lowlier, much more calculated to benefit the souls of men. He made his decision because he really believed that Christ was in and through all things the light of truth. I stood just before a sacrament meeting in the glorious Jerusalem center with a couple who had arrived late in Jerusalem and not only that, wearied, indeed exhausted and jet-lagged, couldn't sleep and walked out that night into the darkness and up to the side of the Mount of Olives near this garden. 
she observed the growing flowers, red blossomed flowers, the lilies of the field that probably Jesus was referring to, not the long-stemmed and white variety that we associate with Easter, but the kind that spring up spontaneously in the spring. She could not help but identify them to even see them as drops of blood. And higher still on this mount, she saw beautiful white flowers, which meant to her purity and the beauty of holiness. One may come to this place seeing Christ nowhere. After being here, living and moving and having your being here, it is as if you see him everywhere. I've listened to the testimony of a special witness at a temple dedication who made real what seems contradictory, namely that we may have our garments made white in the blood of the Lamb. Blood, as we all know, stains. Uh, yes, but it also, if it is the blood of Christ, purifies. I have spoken here or near here with many of the greatest scholars of the world, trained in the languages, the history, the culture, the geography, the archaeology, the history of all religions. All of them make a distinction between knowledge by hearing, as it were, the distant knowledge of the spectator and the knowledge of participation. Jesus the Christ in Gethsemane participated vicariously in all levels of human experience so that as Brigham Young said, his sacrificial act could reach to every case, every person who ever lived. I have sat in a modern car with a cripple who could not even be helped out into either the garden or any of the associated sites on this mount, and quoted to him the verses from Isaiah as well as from sections 88 and 133. I have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Our students tread out grapes in a press that is built to be a perfect resemblance to ancient ones. One can use beasts of burden with hoofs covered in burlap, or one can use tilting rocks, or one can join and link arms with others in the treading. And as a matter of fact, you need some baluster support because it is slippery work, but the imagery is that Jesus carried the load alone. I bear my own testimony here and now. 
that the abstractions as they once seemed to me in modern scripture are flesh and bone realities. Intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. And because of what he went through here, Jesus Christ is more intelligent than we all. Truth embraceth truth. And because of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is the truth and the light of truth in and through all things. Light cleaveth unto light, and Jesus Christ is the light of the world, our world, our inner world, as well as the worlds without number. Mercy hath compassion on mercy, and the bowels of mercy that overpowers justice were experienced here. And finally, love begets love, and greater love hath no man than the love of Christ. How can you say you love me, says an ancient proverb, if you don't know what I need? Jesus the Christ knows and cares.